listening to our live broadcast. Today we're looking at the Gotita Sutta, Gotra Nikaya Book of Pores, number 173. Why I hit upon this Sutta? Um, it's not precisely to do with the actual content of the sutta but it's to do with the point being made by the sutta which is actually quite important for those of us attempting to cultivate an understanding of reality so the sutta is a conversation between Sariputta and Mahakotika Sariputta, of course, was yeah, the Buddha's general of Dhamma, the right-hand man of the Buddha, right-hand dude. Mahakotika, another one of the famous arahants, and Mahakotika had some questions for Sariputta. And the answers are somewhat puzzling at first glance, but the the, the wording within them is uh, is quite important. So, questions are, and it's just a set of four questions. It's like one of these um, formal inquiries. So you give four inquiries into the four possibilities. Something is something, something isn't something, something both is something and isn't something, and neither is something nor isn't something. Those are the four possibilities. Now you'd think there would be only two, right? Can, is and I is or isn't. But there are certain things, certain concepts at least, perhaps certain realities, that both are something and aren't something, and there are those that neither are something nor aren't something. But if you could answer negatively to all four of these, well, then you had something quite special. And so this is often the case where it was none of these four. And then you had to explain how it could be none of those four, and that's what this sutta does. So in relation to contact of the senses, Channang nabuso pasayatananang. With the contact, uh, no, with the senses, pasayatananang. The contact, the senses of contact, or the senses in contact. You know, the four spheres, the six spheres of contact. Maybe what it is. So ayatana is like a sphere. The six spheres of contact, of course, are the six senses. And these are one very clear way of describing experience. And thereby, from a Buddhist point of view, describing reality. And that's what this sutta really explains, and this is why I picked up on it. I want you all to, to read, to think about and understand this sutta. With the uh, cessation, the complete and utter cessation with no remainder of the six spheres of contact. This is a description of Nibbana, actually. But there's a, there's, a, there's a theory behind this question. The question is something that's confusing this monk. Well, when the six senses, or maybe he's an arahant and he's just asking for the benefit of, of others, but he says, when, with the cessation, when, when, when all of these, when experience ceases, when there's no seeing, no hearing, no smelling, no tasting, no feeling, no thinking. Through the attainment of Nibbana, Atanyang Kinchi. Atanyang Kinchi. 
Is there anything else? Ati is is there? Ginji anything? Anyang other. So what's he asking? He's asking. It's a it's a question that m probably is actually quite um, easily understood for most of us. Yeah, we're like, yeah, we want to know this. So when when the senses cease, is there anything else? And he says, "Ma he wang awusu." Ma means don't. So it's quite curious. It means like don't. Don't don't let it be thus. Don't think thus. Don't hold that view. So the, the the view that there is something else when they cease is not a view to be held. The, the language here is important, and and I'll explain why it's important. And I give an example of how in modern times we we cause problems by not paying enough attention to exactly what's being said. So we cultivate views based on leaping to conclusions based on what's being said or, or based on what's not being said, actually. So then he asks, well, with the cessation, complete and utter cessation of the spheres of, this of contact, when there's no contact, is there not? Is there not anything else? Is it that there is not anything else? Natanyanginji says, "Mahi wang awusu." Don't say that. Don't think that. Don't believe that. Don't hold that. So the view that there is nothing is also not to be held, not to be believed. And, the, and then, well, as you can see where this is going, there's the four kinds. So the third one is, well, is there both, is it that there both is and is not anything else? With the cessation of the spheres of contact, meaning contact between, the, between vision and the eye and sound and the ear and so on. Mahe wanga so No. It's not that there both is and isn't something else. And as well, is there neither? Is it that there neither is nor is not something else? And he says, "Don't believe that." So he's totally shut down because you could say, "Well, maybe it's that there neither is nor isn't. Maybe there's it's some something else." He says, "Don't don't think that." And Mahakotika becomes confused or else he's you know he could just be playing the part because sometimes they would have this dialogue even as arahants to lay down something to make something clear for for the whole sangha so it would be um, it's called a, um, a, a dhamma talk with two dhamma seats so they would have two seats and normally when you have a dhamma talk you have a big seat where they have to sit up high but then they would have two seats, and one of them would ask questions, and the other one would answer. So, very, very well may be what was going on here. I don't want to um, criticize Mahakodika for being confused. He may have just been playing the part of questioner. And he says, "Well, I hear you say it's not this, it's not that, it's not this, it's not that. It's none of these four things." And you say we shouldn't hold. You respond in this way. How should we understand? How should this be understood? In what way should the meaning of this statement be understood? And here's the important part. It's, the, it's, a, it's a fairly key point in Buddhist philosophy and practice. He says, these four statements, iti wadang, um, say speaking thus or holding thus, apapanchang papancheti, apapanchang papancheti. It's an important 
an important two words. Um, and I'm not sure I can quite do it justice, not easily. Papancha. Papancha is a word that is given not nearly enough attention in, uh, in Buddhist thought. It's underappreciated or, or underrepresented. I think those who have heard of it appreciate it, but you don't hear about it that often. No, and maybe on reading it, if you're not clear about the importance of it, you might miss it. Papancha means making more out of something than it already is. So Bhikkhu Bodhi, I think, translates as diversification, which is fine. It's just a little bit of an awkward word. Oh no, he uses proliferate, which is actually not my favorite translation. Because to proliferate something is to just make copies of it, right? You proliferate. Prolif, I don't even know where that comes from, but it makes uh, it means make more of it. But but the the point here is not to to make it again and again. Papancha means to extrapolate. It's probably the closest I could come to a good definition of papancha in my understanding papancha is used in in we're talking about paticca samupada there's a point where the buddha just explains it that way he explains paticca samupada that way he says you know the problem comes it's like avijja um, pajjaya sankhara and i think Sankara Pajaya Papancha, or something like that. There's a point where Papancha comes into Paticca Samapada, and basically what he's saying is that it's the extrapolation. Making more of something than it already is. Making it uh, going beyond the actual fact or the actual phenomenon. So here he says, Apapanchang, something that is not diverse or not extrapolated something that is un, um, unabstracted abstracted is maybe a good way of describing this something that is, 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 is what it is so we often refer to these as sabhava dhamma sabhava means something that is real you know, has its own existence just for a moment you know, the experience is just momentary but that moment is real it's this claim of an actual truth. We're studying religion now in university, and one of the f when we first start off, we have to talk about what is religion, and um, there's a lot of talk about postmodernism, which I can actually appreciate um, to an extent, but if taken to its ultimate, if taken too seriously, it it becomes ridiculous. The idea that there are there is no absolute truth is a very dangerous view. Now it's all right to challenge truths that are held to be universal because by and far most of them are not universal truths. Most of them are just you know, concepts, maybe even practical ones that work. But they only they only uh, they're only true in a certain context. So I can appreciate that. But to say that there is no ultimate truth is very dangerous. And Buddhism claims that there is ultimate truth. But it's a very simple set of ultimate truths. It's not very complicated or, or numerous or diverse. And so one of the real one of the truths is that experience exists. And this idea that these things are true and real. Seeing is seeing. And and that, that happens. So it, but it's undiversified. Seeing is just seeing. That's how it starts. So do you see how this relates to our practice? All the time I'm talking about. Don't react. Don't judge. Don't make more of something than it is. Papancha, apapanchang, something that is not that yet. Seeing is just seeing. Papanchaiti. Eti means the a, the a sound is a causative verb, so it means you cause something to be papancha, to be extrapolated or diverse, or more than it actually is. 
So, so that's an easy concept to understand. Um, in, I mean, well, not easy, but for us it should be easy um, to understand from the point of view of the meditation how seeing should just be seeing, and the problems come when seeing becomes more than that. When seeing becomes I'm seeing, and what I'm seeing is good, what I'm seeing is bad. Once we extrapolate upon the experience, we run into problems. That's where all of our likes and dislikes and ego and conceit and arrogance and jealousy and all sorts of bad stuff comes from. But if we could start by seeing things just as they are, then well, we could interact with them appropriately. We wouldn't be caught up in the abstractions. We might, be, we might understand what it means to abstract, but we wouldn't be caught up in it because we wouldn't forget. This is what sati means. We wouldn't forget about what was real. The apapancha, the thing that is not yet diverse, that is simple. And But here we have in, in regards to... Um, what, what's use interesting about this is not that. It's, this is a different usage of the idea of proliferation. They're related, but specific. And it, you know, th there's different interpretations of what he's saying here, and some people look at this and say, "Well, they don't." It's it's odd that he's saying that because it's clear that when the senses cease, there is no more sensing. So why wouldn't you just say there's nothing? It's curious that he doesn't, and that throughout the Buddha's teaching, there is no saying there is nothing. You know, with the cessation of the six senses, there is nothing. You don't see that. There's a, there's a sense of, of avoiding saying that. And it's not just to, to avoid scaring people. Oh, nothingness doesn't sound appealing. It's that, and I've said this before, that, I mean, and this is my understanding of it, which you know, seems quite clear as day from my point of view, so, but, you know, everyone has their own point of view. Um, is that the whole concept of self, the whole concept of um, any entity, quote-unquote, existing or not existing, you know, the whole concept of it, the whole framework, that whole plane of thought is papancha. It goes beyond what actually is. What actually is is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. And, and maybe that's even going too far, because that sounds like I'm saying that that's all there is. And, and, and then, you, well, well that, that of course sounds very close to the truth, but it starts to sound like you're talking on the plane of something that exists. So. Maybe we should even avoid saying that these things exist and just talk about them as, as in, in terms of describing them, right? So we can avoid, because what we want to do is avoid cultivating a conception in our mind of a static reality, something that exists with a big E, I suppose, in terms of being permanent, stable, you know, that kind of thing. That's what we want to get away from. Because we have these conceptions in our mind, but they are papancha, they are abstractions, they are extrapolations of reality. Reality. Reality is somewhat pragmatic. And if you look up pragmatism, it's I'm not even sure I quite understand where they were going with pragmatism, but it's kind of what I'm talking about, what we're talking about in Buddhism. The idea that we're not so concerned about describing a static reality. We're concerned about describing experiences, which are so much more useful and so much more real and so much more pertinent and so much more crucial in terms of avoiding the problems involved with deluding ourselves, forgetting that what we're experiencing is just quite simple experience. When you see a spider, it's not really a spider. When you see a person, it's not really a person. It's 
someone's yelling at you and calling you nasty names, it's actually just sound. And all that anger and frustration and fear and worry that you're cultivating, it's all on you. Because they can't hurt you. If they beat you and break your bones, all of this is just experience too. Having your bones broken is probably a really interesting experience. I've never had a bone broken before. It strikes me as being uniquely interesting. But it horrifies us because we make more of it than it actually is. It sounds like a fairly trite thing to say. I mean, it's how, how can you, you know, it's easy to say, but it is a horrific experience. Well, it's not actually, but we're so caught up in making more out of things than they actually are that actually all of this suffering is on us. You don't have to suffer no matter what happens to your body. It's very much about the mind. And so um, what is leading to this, this is, is to point out the problem with talking about atta, self. It's just, a, it's just a conversation that doesn't deserve to be had. Is there a self? Isn't there a self? It's, uh, it's like this question one Buddhist author brings up. He says, if you ask an innocent man, have you stopped beating your wife? How do you even approach that question? I mean, I never started beating my wife, so how could I stop? Right? It's, it's just a question that, that doesn't even apply. The question of is there a self, isn't there a self? Just by asking these, you're in the wrong framework. You're going beyond what is pertinent, useful, understandable, knowable. And so Buddhism really doesn't, in my mind, go there. And and it, it doesn't do it, it, it. It's not that it doesn't. The Buddha didn't go there simply because you know, he wasn't capable of giving an adequate explanation. It's that when you go there, you leave behind reality. You diversify what is undiversified. You extrapolate upon the unextrapolated. You make more of something that is quite simple. And so what he does say, which is, it's interesting that he does actually say something, he says, as far as the range of the six bases for contact extends, just so far extends the range of proliferation. This is Bika Bodhi's translation. Again, I'm not liking the word proliferation, but um, all any, what it, basically that's what that's saying is he's trying to give him some answer. So he says, Proliferation only extends, or let's say diversification only extends to the six senses. So what you what you make more of, what you extrapolate upon, is the six senses. Um, and the range of e extrapolation is is also the range of the six senses. So it goes both ways. They they don't outstrip each other. The six sense bases are are the realm of proliferation, of extrapolation. So with the remainderless fading away and cessation of the six spheres of contact, there is, there is the cessation of proliferation, of extrapolation. That's what he does say. There's no more, there can, be, there can therefore be no more extrapolating, no more making more of things. No more conceiving of things, and and I think to some extent this answer is inadequate. It still leaves because it doesn't answer these questions. And if you feel that it's inadequate, then from our point of view, from well, my point of view anyway, it's a sign that you're still in the realm of proliferation, of extrapolation, of abstraction, and you've got to get yourself to the point where you're able to see things just as they are. I mean, that's what we're trying for. You've got to make that paradigm shift. If you want to be a Buddhist, you want to be in the Buddhist club, it's a part of your initiation to make the paradigm shift and look at the world 
from a point of view of reality, and we accept and realize that seeing is just seeing. That's the basis, the basic um, building block of reality. Now you can you can extrapolate and you know, live your life as normal, but start from the point of view that you know, experience is the building block. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. Get out of this idea of a four-dimensional space-time of, of a past, of a future, of a here and a there, of a this and a that, of a static universe that we're taught to believe in. It's not even that those things don't, to some extent, exist. It's that the concept or the conceiving of their existence is a abstraction. I've said this before, and, and I think this sutta is a good one to back it up. If all of what I said is incomprehensible, well, it's okay, just keep meditating. This is all theory. But uh, hopefully this has gone some way for some of you. Probably the ones of you, uh, I dare say the ones who are actually meditating in this tradition. Some way to help clarify this dilemma of not dealing with the idea, is there a self, for example. So, there you go. There's the Dhamma for this evening. Seems since I wasn't here last night, we got lots of deep and profound and wonderful questions. Maybe we got lots of questions that I'm going to trash. Still there, Robin? I am. How important is the use of mantras? I have been practicing a form of vipassana with direct observation without mantra. I find it difficult to do the meditation with the mantra. It's important. And the <coughs> fact that it's difficult to do meditation with the mantra is also important. This meditation is designed to be difficult designed to challenge you. Now, there are ways by which it can be difficult that are problematic, I would agree. You know, there are ways for something to be difficult that are not good. Just because something's difficult, you know, um, forcing food down your throat when you're already full is probably not beneficial, and yet it's quite difficult. But meditation using the mantra is... Um, it's not actually the mantra that's difficult, you see. It's the fact that the mantra really forces you into objectivity. You know, it, it forces you into a state that is normally reserved for something that's easy, right? Because what the mantra does is it fixes you on an object. It brings you very, very close to that object. You know, it may not seem like that, but the reason it doesn't seem like that is because that's jarring. That's not how we normally um, approach experience. You'll have an experience, and immediately there's papancha, there's there's extrapolation. You judge it, you react to it. You're 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 only momentarily with the object, and then you're gone. The mind's normally floating from object to one object to another. And if that sounds comfortable, it's, it certainly should. I mean, that's quite comfortable. That's how we live, floating from one, flitting from one object to the next on wind until we get crushed by you know, uh, disappointment or um, yeah, by getting what we don't want, not getting what we want, that kind of thing. But that's how we normally live our lives. Now when, you're, when your mind is forced to stay with the object, well then there's often a, uh, a jarring sense and a discomfort involved with that. And often it actually increases your reaction right, because you get close to the object and so you might actually, well, in the beginning, there's certainly, because you're closer to the object and because 
because you're not behaving in a way that is comfortable, that is familiar, there's going to be a strong reaction. There's a, it's like a sense of withdrawal, really. And so as a re result, you become all flustered and upset. You find it unpleasant. And then when you do that, of course, because the meditation is something you're not very familiar with, then there arises all sorts of doubts. And with those doubts, well, then the it gets more difficult, and then you're no longer mindful at all. And so it causes. And then you've heard there are other meditations where you don't practice in this way, and you start to think of what you thought meditation was supposed to be, where you just sit and watch without any kind of work on your part, and it puts you in the in a right tizzle. To use a technical term. Um, so, I, it's, it's sometimes difficult to to convince such a person of the benefit of the practice, because there are lots of other traditions out there that say, "Hey, don't use a mantra. That's just getting in your way," which is patently absurd, considering how tried, tested, and true mantra meditation is. But then we set up a double standard and we say, oh, well, that's only true for samatha, which is another patently absurd statement. Why it should be that way, there's no reason, there's no you know, logical argument. Either it brings you closer to the object or it doesn't. It's not that it brings you closer to one kind of object and brings you farther away from another kind of object. The problem is the object in this case is something that is unsatisfying, unstable, uncontrollable, unpleasant. It's suffering. Remember the Buddha said the first noble truth is that we should understand suffering fully. That's our practice. Our practice isn't to run away from suffering. It isn't to do what is easy. Whenever anyone brings up this concept of difficulty, I say, well, okay, if you want an easy practice, I would say, you know, go home or just lie down, watch television. If easy is what you're looking for, that's that's not a problem. I can help you find easy. But there's no sense that difficulty is, is, is makes something wrong. And in this case, I guarantee I I can affirm that the difficulty is a good thing. It's challenging you. And part of the difficulty is probably in most cases that you have doubt, you know. I really know what he's talking about. Is this technique really the right technique? Really a good technique? In which case, I tell you to say to yourself, doubting, doubting, and you'll find, wow, the doubt just goes away. It might come back, but if you say to yourself, doubting, doubting, like everything else, it will go away. So I'm not sure how, how well I can answer that question. In the end, you have to find your way yourself, but uh, you know, my simple answer is absolutely, it's very important, it's essential, I mean, well it's not essential, as I've said, yes you can become enlightened in many different ways and it's theoretically possible for someone to be, become enlightened watching a leaf fall from a tree, that sort of thing happens, but um, it's not practically useful, and I wouldn't just go and sit under a tree and watch leaves fall to become enlightened. So here we have a... Um, I, w I, guess I, w I guess what I would say is it's better to use the mantra. It's more powerful. If you're not using the mantra, it's sketchy at best as to whether you're actually meditating. I would say in most cases you're meditating to some extent, but it's very hard to tell whether you're actually meditating or not because how do you define what is meditation and what is not then, right? How do you define what is mindful and what is not? If you're just sitting and watching, because we are always watching, how do you keep yourself from conceiving, from extrapolating? That's what the mantra is for. That's exactly what it's for, to keep you from extrapolating. This should all be clear if you think about it, and you think about all these concepts, it should be quite clear that's why we use the mantra. It's all what I was just talking about. We extrapolate things, so in order to avoid that, we remind ourselves of what it actually is. 
seeing, seeing, and then the extrapolation doesn't occur, or it's lessened. A big bug. Could we continue doing Dhammapada Day? Maybe switch it to another day since you'll be busy on Mondays? Maybe. Maybe. Sometimes I feel bad that I exist because I inevitably kill things in my wake. Is, th is this a strange view? It's not strange. I mean, it's not proper view. So you're not actually killing. If you kill on purpose, that's killing. If things die because you walk around, well, things die all the time. You'll die eventually. So don't feel bad. It's kind of the giant giantist view, right? You have to mm. sweep the sweep the path in front of you so you didn't yeah. step on any insects. Well, eventually starve yourself to death. Mm. What they're really into. Mm. I have a mm. I have a few questions about meditation techniques. One in walking meditation, I seem to be guiding my feet conscientiously, consciously. So isn't that not observance? I mean, it's like I'm observing after the action was controlled, which is probably the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, what you're seeing is your tendency to try and control things, which is good to see. You'll see how much suffering is involved there, and you'll eventually that'll eventually change. Next. In relation to overcoming that I had an idea to pace my walks really slow so I can observe them instead of guiding them, also is it somewhat much harder? Is that a correct form? No. That's, I've talked about this before, that's cheating. And it's forcing yourself to not force. If you think about it, you'll see how, how wrong it is, how, how impossible it is. Because what you're saying is here I'm trying to control things so, and that's happening naturally, so instead, I'll control myself not to control, you know. No, no that's the point, is you, there's no way out of it, you know. We, we, we don't want to face up to the fact that we are messed up, and that's what you're facing up to. Yeah, you're trying to control it. That's, you know, it's not like you're intending to try and control it, it's just your habit. But that's what you're seeing, you're seeing that as it's a habit, you're seeing how much how stressful that is, and that's gonna that's gonna lead you to well to letting it go. About the mantra you mentioned, you always note, but a day ago, answering someone's question, you concurred that noting could be without saying. No, I didn't. That was my first experience in meditation. It had much more resolution and discovery to each moment than the mantra. So is that also a proper technique, or are there limitations and things to be careful there also? I don't know that I ever said noting could be done without saying. I mean, you don't ever say it out loud, right? But it's a mantra, it's a word that you use. This is a technique. If you don't like it, well, fine, there's lots of other techniques out there. My claim is that this technique is strong, stronger than most others, and clearer, better, and... But uh, absolutely, if you want to go back to the other meditation and believe that it had much more resolution and discovery to each moment, power to you. Um, I don't believe that to be the truth. I mean, well, or I don't believe that to be the essential and proper understanding of, of reality, but you know, I'm just putting it out there that that's my view. Um, that all of that resolution and discovery is not and, and it, it's it's not where we're going it's not what we're looking at so one thing you might want to think about this meditation is it's somewhat brutalist 
me if that's the right word we, and it's parsimonious we're cutting off all the all the excess fluff so there's no investigation there's no discovery there's no resolution there's I mean well, there are many things that are left are cut through you know, as far as discovery and resolution they're cut through to things that are more important like the fact that you try to control everything that's what you should be seeing and that's why it should be difficult for most people because we have all sorts of messed up stuff inside if the meditation is not showing you that it's just kind of comfortable and we have these epiphanies once in a while but you don't actually challenge yourself I mean I don't know I'm not going to argue this too much I think we're beating a dead horse if you, if you like what I teach come for it I'm not going to try and convince you if you don't like it, go elsewhere. I'm not looking for students. To rephrase a pe previous inquiry, I had a question regarding how momentary experiences should be noted. For instance, when my mind recalls a disturbing event, do I just say upset, upset, and or thinking, thinking until it goes away? or just when it arises and then immediately return to my base object, the rising and fall of my abdomen. When upset, does one just say upset, upset twice to acknowledge the momentary experience and then immediately return to the abdomen? Or does one keep noting the momentary experience for however long it lasts and only return to the abdomen after it's gone? Try and stay with it until it goes away. If after a long time it doesn't go away, then you can, come, you can ignore it and come back to the... Uh, main, uh, main meditation but do acknowledge it for quite some time and I've tried to ask you what a long time is and you won't answer that yeah well, it shouldn't be, it's not like 13.5 times <laughs> it's not what it means for those of us with well-managed chronic illnesses of the body is ordination possible? I'm a type 1 diabetic, and I don't know if monkhood is compatible with my body's management. Health insurance, refrigerated insulin, low-carb diet, frequent medical exams. Thank you for this opportunity to ask. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a problem. There are monks who have diabetes, but they tend to be somewhat burdensome. You know, it's, it's not ideal. Certainly not technically against the rules but uh, it might fall into something that is in line with what is against the rules. You know, I mean, certain types of illnesses are not allowed. If you have those illnesses, you can't become a monk. And one might argue that diabetes should fall into, those, into the same category because it is a disease that requires, a sickness that requires constant medication. You know, even though you know, in, a, in a modern setting, it's quite easy like if I got diabetes well I could you know certainly I have enough support to help me get my medication but um, that's that's not really an excuse and and I mean that's another thing is if a monk gets sick well then he's to be taken care of he or she is to be taken care of uh, being whether they're a burden or not but uh, you see accepting people who are already sick it becomes problematic one of the reasons is because well then sick people will often ordain because uh, they can't, you know, because it makes life easier to be supported by the Sangha. And then uh, we, we end up with a bunch of sick people, which, you know, it's not anything against sick people, but, you know, if everyone's sick, well, it kind of causes problems. I mean, it's just, practically speaking, problematic to accept sick people. And I think you could argue that diabetes is there. Which may sound cruel and harsh, but you know, w w as along with many other things, you have to understand that monkhood isn't the be-all, end-all of Buddhism. And there are people who will not ordain and become enlightened without ordaining. There's many people who will become sotapanna, even become arahant without ordaining. But um, there's, there's you may have to accept the fact that a person like this may not be able may not be appropriate to ordain. I'd certainly 
want to think long and hard about whether to accept such a person based on, on my understanding of the principles of ordination. The word delusion sounds a bit broad. Maybe that's the case because I don't speak English as a native language. Can you please give an example in daily life in which someone experiences something and notes delusion, delusion? Thank yeah, you. I, I don't know that you'd note delusion. Like if you're deluded, you're probably not very mindful. But delusion is, is just an is purposefully general, general. It means it's an umbrella term. So confused. If you're confused, that's a kind of delusion in, 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 the, in our use of the word. If you are, if you have doubt, that's a kind of moha. Moha is the word, and it doesn't actually mean delusion. Moha means, moha comes from muh, muh, which means muddled. I've talked about this before. Muh is kind of like the English word muddled, confused, distorted, unclear. It's all that stuff. But pride and conceit are all in there. So you might say confused, I think, is a clear one. Conceited might be another one. Arrogant, if you feel you're, 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 you're feeling arrogant or conceited or self-righteous. That's a good question. I believe you said there are nine forms of conceit based upon the combinations of the three potential perspectives and the three potential realities. Thus, if I believe someone is above me, can I note that as conceit, conceit? Likewise, if I believe I am below someone, would it still be sensible from that end to denote it as conceit? Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in English it might not work so well, but you can, you can also just note knowing or feeling. You don't have to find a technical word for it. In some cases, it's more trouble than it's worth trying to find the right word. So just feeling or knowing is sometimes best. Isn't meditating, directing the mind to do certain things, controlling the mind? When I'm directing it to a touch point and can feel the touching, have I not just made it do what I want it to do? To some extent, yeah. I mean, there's there's ab absolutely a, a theoretical way of believing, you know, understanding it in the way you just described it. But it's it, it's. I mean, imagine we didn't do what we do, right? We didn't have this technique, and you were to just walk down the street, and as you're walking, you'd say walking, walking, and you'd say, well, you know, how can I call this meditation because I'm controlling it, but you see, you were already walking anyway, is the point. So the only reason you, you, you mention this is because it's not what you would normally do. So the idea is, we're just making this what we normally do. Or, or a, 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 a counter-argument might be just, well, it, it becomes an ordinary practice. So what we're trying to do is observe the mind when it undertake when it undertakes certain simple exercises. Um, so the only reason for giving you these seemingly mindless tasks is to simplify reality, because reality is far too complex and, and uh, difficult for, for a beginner anyway to, and well, most meditators, to, to, to cultivate mindfulness with it as a base. So we're just simplifying the ordinary. And the only time that forcing comes into play is when you're accustomed to doing things differently. Like when you're accustomed to walking quickly and having to walk one step at a time. Well, in the beginning that's kind of, as you say, forced. But it's, in a sense, that's just a part of our learning experience. We're not so much concerned with the fact that this is controlling or that is controlling. We're trying to learn about 
how the mind works in in ordinary experience, including you know controlling things to to that extent, like in terms of intending to do something when you intend to do meditation or you intend to walk or you intend to sit. We're trying to learn what that's like because it happens anyway. When you walk down the street, there's an intention. So that's interesting for us to learn about. The live stream link says live stream currently offline. Next broadcast is at 1 UTC a day from now, even though the stream is active. Please fix the live stream notifications page. Yeah, I'm no longer the uh, IT guy here. But, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm doing everything. Maybe I'm not. Let me see. Nope. Live stream currently offline. Something's wrong. That's a bug. Please submit an issue to our GitHub project. Yes, if you want, um, if you want resolution to such issues, you have to submit an issue. I think it talks about it in the help page. Robin? Uh-oh, did I lose Robin? Oh, I don't hear you at all now. Apologies, I, ha I was muted. Um, it seems that the volume of today's broadcast is rather low. Do you have an objective way of seeing how loudly you are broadcasting? Yes. Yeah, for some reason the volume was down. So I think now I'm much louder. It is my feeling that now I will be louder. I've got Robin a little lower because apparently she's much louder than I am. Yeah, that, that was submitted just 40 minutes ago, so I don't know, maybe, maybe uh, it's not quite as loud as we think it is. Well, I just upped it. Okay. That I don't, for some reason it was turned down again. I don't know what's going on there. Okay. How do I get the meditation booklet? Hmm. Well, it's on the internet. I gave you the link. I think you got the link. And if you want a hard copy, you got to come see me. Yeah, if you don't have the link in front of you, if you click on the top of the meditation site, click on the menu, it's under um, guide as well. How long did it take you to learn Pali? How long does it take you to learn, how long did it take you to learn Thai? Which has been more useful? Is there a significant difference in reading the Tipitaka in Pali than in English? not really tempted to answer these questions. I know, I mean, they're useful questions, but if we get too far afield, you can see I've got like 10 questions left to answer. And it's already almost 10, and it's been a long day. So I think I'm going to have to pass on such questions. Apologies, because it's a good question. It's just outside of the realm of this forum. Why are we able to conceive these prapancha thoughts if they are beyond reality and more than what's there? Aren't these abstractions just as much a part of reality as seeing, hearing, smelling, etc.? Well, the thought is a part of reality, but the object of the thought may very well just be a concept. Like if you think of a rabbit with horns, does that mean the rabbit with horns is real? Is it, as, is it as real as a real rabbit? Right. 
So, so even thinking in terms of, of ordinary reality, you know, we know that a rabbit is more real than a rabbit with horns. But um, this, the, you know, the, the same sort of logical process goes with um, thinking of the difference between seeing and the rabbit that you see. The seeing is real, but the rabbit is just something that arises in the mind. I mean, I don't. It's not that hard for me to understand the difference. And so, no, the abstractions themselves are not in any way as real as the reality, the experiences. Yeah, Chad's got some questions that I'm just going to delete. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're getting better, but <laughs> uh, I, I apologize for deleting these, but I've got to stick to this. Stick to. I'm not going to entertain. Mm, what actually is nirvana? I mean, that's a good question, but it's much more theoretical, and I'm not here to talk about Buddhist theory exactly. One still suffers even if the ego is dropped. That's not true. It's caused suffering. Hmm. How is this happiness? Well, that's actually a fairly good one. I shouldn't have deleted that one. But I did. So. Bhante, is it okay to use the word verbs or actions instead of experiences? As in, real as in reality is made up of verbs? Because when we say experiencing, it could give the notion that there is an experience. Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe you're overthinking it. No, it's a it's a good, but it's you know it's just semantics. It's not that important. When you say experience, it takes people away from the abstract and to oh yeah, seeing because seeing is what we understand as an experience. I've been meditating for a while, and sometimes I notice that this rising feeling during meditation is if I can lift out of my body when this happens, I become really terrified and stop. What should I do? Go with the experience? Is this normal? Again, it sounds like you're not practicing in our tradition, so I can't give advice on meditation unless you practice according to our tradition. Now, if you are, apologies, you would just say afraid, afraid, and let it go come back to the rising falling. There. Got rid of all the questions before 10 o'clock. Yes. Thank you, Robin, for your help. Thank you, everyone, for your continued interest. Please don't be discouraged by my vicious slashing of inquiry. Wish you all the best and hope that you're able to practice in whatever way to find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Good night. Thank you, Bhante. Good night. <laughs>